91. The investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91. Investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at risk. 91 is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Future Thinking. Asset management has gone through a series of changes in identity in recent years, with a much-discussed split between mega players and smaller, nimbler boutiques coming to fruition. So what can these groups, without the asset base of their bigger rivals, do to stay relevant? This week's guest is Dominic Johnson, who's the CEO of independent investment house Sumset Capital, which is based in London. Dominic wears two hats as he is also the former chair of Boutique Lobbying Group, the Independent Investment Management Initiative. So, speaking from personal experience, as well as covering the wider market, Dominic discusses how boutiques can and will retain an edge as well as what challenges lie ahead for smaller players. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Future Thinking. As always, I'm Chris Slowly, the editor of Citywide Select. And my guest today is Dominic Johnson, the Chief Executive Officer of Somerset Capital and also a man who's heavily involved or has been heavily involved in putting forward the case for boutique asset managers, which are an increasingly important part of the fund management world. Dominic, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm to be on your show. Thank you very much. Well, as somebody who has lobbied on behalf of boutiques and, and tried to make them more, um, I was going to say, accessible, but also more visible and someone who runs their own shop, I thought you were a prime person to talk about this because speaking to fund selectors, our core audience, they love boutiques. They always want people who can offer something different, a bit more nimble, a bit more independent. But here we are looking at the future and I'm trying to get a handle on what future boutiques have. If that's not the biggest question in the world, where do you see the future of boutiques? Is there, are they in good health? Are there challenges ahead? And, and how are you navigating them as somebody who runs your own shop? Well, well, thank you. Thank you for the question. I'm very, very glad it's been raised because for me, I think the concept of boutique uh, is at the core of Western capitalism and we, we neglect them at our peril. Um, I think that if, if I look at the, at the Brexit debate, there was a very clear um, delineation between what the European uh, regulator community wanted, which was a very small number of very large financial services companies, and then what the UK or Anglo-Saxon regulator wanted, which was a myriad of about, you know, a thousand flowers living in a rich tapestry. Um, of a sort of financial ecosystem. And the only way you can have that and you can have innovation, uh, and I think it might be better alignment of interest between the customer and the firm, amongst other benefits that we can talk about, is by having a flourishing boutique environment. And I was talking to my colleagues in advance of this discussion, thinking, shall I be, shall I be pessimistic or shall I be optimistic? Well, I'm half and half. I'm very optimistic about the boutiques that we have in London at the moment. I'm very optimistic about Somerset. Capital, but I am uh, nostalgic, maybe is the word, for a time when we were able to set these businesses up. And the, the evidence clearly points to a continued slowing of new boutique startups. And if I look at um, what I set up, the lobby um, group, the New City Initiative, now called the Independent Investment Management Initiative, uh, nearly 12 years ago now, um, we had about 45 companies um, in the first few years, all of whom were, were relatively young, I think. Uh, we were about three or four years um, of average age. When I look at the membership now of this great organisation we're proud to subscribe to, I think we've only had a few new startups join. Um, and that sort of is a good anecdotal piece of evidence that shows that the um, 
ecosystem clearly isn't working in terms of necessarily producing the new boutiques. And that's for a number of reasons that we, we can go into. I was going to ask, yeah, if we could jump into that. Why is that? Because when I speak to, I've, I've noticed that myself. In fact, I spoke to a French group yesterday morning and they they said if they hadn't set up when they set up, they don't think they'll be able to do it now. What do you think the main impediments are? Well, what they say is exactly what I say. Um, and the, the, the impediments are relatively straightforward to identify. It is, it is the dreaded word regulation in inverted commas. And we have to be very careful because actually good regulation is what gives us the markets, frameworks and structures that allows us to succeed. And the reason why people come to London as opposed to other economies is because we have a fabulous regulatory system and it's safe and secure and we, you know, we behave and hold very well. Um, but excessive regulation has had peculiar outcomes. And the main outcome it's had is that it, it is not so much the regulation on my own business, by the way, which is significant and has led to very high immediate fixed costs, which changes the whole dynamic of a startup. So that's one point. But the second point is, it, is it's regulated the client. And the fear of um, acting inappropriately is what uh, means that many of our investors who invested in us when we started couldn't, can't now invest in startups management firms because you have to be a certain size then to feel that you're you know about sure. stature and you have that terrible chicken and egg which is you know no fund could raise money until it's at 100 million and no one can put any money in it until it gets that size and so how do you get to 100 million so that that is is peculiar enough um uh, you know it, 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 an old byproduct of the regulatory environment which is sort of a peculiar fear through the regulators that um have prevented a lot of these organizations who want to from investing in smaller startup firms well, that, that very much chimes with what I'm hearing as well. And that 100 million mark was the exact number that the company quoted to me yesterday. Oh, I was the one who told you not to use yesterday as a reference, and I'm using yesterday as a reference. But in terms of the way that companies are developing, we've also seen a lot more have come to the market different ways, either through what we consider multi-boutique structures, where there's one sort of central backer or promoter, or where they've had direct sort of cornerstone assets. I'm thinking of generally pumping a billion euros into Plenisper, for example. Do you think that's going to be more of a common um, way of approaching things? And does that somewhat remove the purity of the boutique if it's not independent in the sense that it's got a huge backer? That is a very good point. Um, and, and, I'm, and, you know, you have to cut your cloth, as it, as it were, to, to, to what you're able to, to make out of it. Um, so I think people who have gone the platform route and or got a, um, a significant backer have done very well for themselves, and I congratulate them. But you mentioned a very powerful word there, which is independent. I mean, Somerset Capital Management is a, a totally independent firm. We do have a few clients who have a small shareholding, but we know we're owned by our partners. We live or die by our the success of our of our performance and that creates a very powerful culture of alignment of interest and and i think if you go back time and again look at the crises in capitalism banking the stock markets whatever it may be nearly always when there's been bad practice is because there hasn't been alignment of interest so by by not enabling boutique firms to set up in, in a relatively pure way um i think you're you're fundamentally fraying that important element of alignment of interest this is the new fallback on box ticking regulation to try and enforce good behaviour and good culture. And as you well know, you know that doesn't really work as nearly as well at the end of the day. And I would just say one thing very important in my view, which is that the system should encourage as many smaller firms as possible um, for, for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, very large organisations, as we saw in the financial crisis, are extremely dangerous holistically to the system. Um, secondly, by having sort of capacity constrained niche products, 
you can experiment more. And frankly, in, in, you know, if, if a boutique firm with a, with a billion dollars or half a billion dollars doesn't work out, um, they tend to have only operated with um, institutional capital. And it's not the end of the world in terms of the system is concerned. You know, lessons are learned, and that's how capitalism functions. And then thirdly, when we're seeing this, um, there's a very interesting article recently I read in, in the Economist or the FT talking about the decline of London as a, as a listing capital and small caps that drive mid caps that drive big caps are starved of attention because of the regulations following on from concepts such as MIFID II that have prevented you know small specialists small cap um, fund management firms setting up um, to exploit this area so so we're losing in in three very important um, areas and and that is a an issue for the system at large and for savers but you know more important for, for the economy and the global capitalist system in general do you see the problem becoming more intensified? Because we are seeing consolidation. We've seen huge um, joining together of companies, Franklin Templeton, Leg Mason, Eaton Vance being taken over by Morgan Stanley. It does seem to be moving that way. Or, I mean, trying to play devil's advocate, does that also harden the case for having smaller independent players who offer something different to these larger, more superstore, super megastore style asset management houses? Well, like in all things, you know, you, you, want, you want to go to Tesco's. Um, and buy your, you know, weekly shop, but also at the same time you want to go to artisanal bakers and butchers that can provide wonderful, sustainably sourced meats and so on and so forth. And I think that's what the boutique environment offers you. Um, it also keeps a strong competitive landscape. And I think it, um, as I said, I think it just reduces risk to the system. So if I think of things like ESG, um, the the real value offering that a boutique firm like Somerset Capital can offer to our clients who really being embedded in an ESG process that this sort of in just in terms of our culture and how we engage with companies and the service we can offer our clients. These services, I think, are, are best suited to smaller firms in the sense that very, very large firms with vast pools of capital, I think, find it very difficult to get into those types of uh, specific linked relationships in, in the companies in which they're investing. Now, that's not to say that their size doesn't give them huge sway, because it does. But I'm just talking about being able to go under the radar um, being nimble in less liquid markets and smaller companies and having real engagement with these companies, which is what we do. And that's very different. You know, the, the, our, our large competitors, I think, provide fabulous service. And um, I, I, you know, I'm happy to invest in myself, I'm sure, from, from time to time when, they, when they've got good products. And I think from a savers point of view, there's an element of simplicity to having a slightly consolidated market at that end. But for the institutional, more sophisticated investment market, and for the sake of the investments you're making, you've got to have the boutiques um, in order to allow you to take that type of risk, which in many instances, the very large organisations find hard. And I'm using anecdotal evidence, but I know there are several cases of small cap or frontier or micro cap um, or less liquid strategies being closed down by my very large um, peers just because they can't manage that risk internally, whereas, of course, for a firm like us, that's our meat and drink, and that's the difference. Absolutely. Well, you, you opened by talking about your, your previous hat, the previous role with the IIMI. Apologies, because I always get the wrong I's and M's in that order. Hopefully, I've managed to get it right. Three I's and one M. Three I's, one M. And what is at the top of their agenda at the moment? I know when I spoke to Nick Mottram last year, it was the idea of having some sort of UK equivalent to the USITS um, scheme to allow to greater competition, Asia to do the same thing. What's at the top of the issues for the boutique in industry as a whole? So uh, I think a, uses, uh, a global, a UK global uses equivalent scheme is really powerful and we should be going absolute for broke on this, um, if that's the right phrase, uh, because I think that we could pin together sort of ex-Commonwealth countries, you know, 
including places like Hong Kong and so on, and really creating a, a fabulous structure and creating a fund management, also fund administration um, uh, industry in the UK that frankly we don't have in the same way that Luxembourg and Ireland have. Why do they have it? Why isn't it in London? You know, it should be. And so this would be a huge break for us. And, and post-Brexit allows us to capitalise heavily on that. So I'm all for that. And I'm sure that's high on everyone's agenda, but I haven't seen enough on this, even though whenever I talk to policymakers, they all express great interest. But, you know, let's let's make real move on that. Um, I think the other area is, is just looking at how boutiques can be um, assisted by the FCA particularly. And the real problem is when is, is the, the dynamics of starting up a boutique firm. So when I set someone's like capital up, we could do it on a shoestring, literally. Um, we didn't have to pay ourselves. Uh, we didn't have great, you know, expensive systems. Um, one of our software partners became, you know, the head of compliance in the sense that, you know, you could have several different hats. Now, when you want to set up, you have to have a fully operational, you know, multi-million pound compliance unit already in existence that, that you might have to pay with no revenue for, for years um, before you start getting money in if you're doing an exploratory type of fund. So we, we're pushing, well, they are pushing, and I support them totally in this, the FCA to just to look far more um, effectively and immediately at a startup sandbox or sandpit, whatever they want to, to call it, where you can get your business going in a very lightly regulated way. You get extra handholding in terms of sort of um, the FCA responsiveness to your filings, etc. Just as I think they've tried to do with um, commercial banking in terms of bringing in those um, disruptor startup fintech companies. Great um, system they've run there. We'd like to see that really well implemented when it comes to um, uh, boutique fund management businesses. And I just say one thing, which is, you know, Brexit, the, the, the B word, um, is an enormous opportunity for us. And I'm not just saying that in a sort of political way that, that people say Brexit is a great opportunity for us, but it really is because, as I said at the beginning, um, the way Europe and, and European financial regulators, and in fact, I think the European body politic look at asset management is it's a slightly spivvy sort of side industry that should be very, very heavily controlled and only used as the last resort. And I remember a regulator telling me you know, he wanted to see three big asset management firms in Europe and three fund products, cash bonds and equities, and you could access them on an app and that would be it. We know that isn't the way to make mankind better off um, and give us longer, happier lives. It is by having an, an extraordinarily innovative but well-managed um, ecosystem in financial services. And so let's see um, the regulatory dividend from that. Because as I said, this isn't just a question of a divergence of um, small opinions uh, or slightly different views. If they had a totally different view of how to regulate, we have a different view of how to regulate. So let's see the ramifications of that and be brave and regulate our services industry in a way that allows us truly to flourish and manage the risk accordingly. So we haven't seen enough of that in my view, and I, I do call for it. That's excellent comprehensive answer. I can't actually think of how to to come in on that because I think you covered all of the ground and I think one of the key elements there is ensuring that it remains competitive and that the boutiques have the same options or same advantages as as their peers regardless of their size if I've understood correctly. Well, well, quite. I mean, you know, the small businesses are different. Um, there are different risks around them, but I just think that you know we are a nation of, of, of small businesses and particularly in financial services, having lots and lots of different specialist, innovative um, companies in London is what will drive so many other things. So it's not just, you know, fund management firms, some of the capital of my life, but all the people are, um, who service our business, the lawyers, the, the accounts, um, the, the, the systems that we use, and the culture of clustering brilliant people from around the world um, who are just at the cutting edge of um, investing and creating capital 
um, returns. And I, I'm excited by that. I still think London unquestionably is the global leader in this. But I just think, you know, are we really doing enough to capitalise, A, on Brexit, um, and B, are we doing enough to, to help these businesses, given the regulatory um, unintended consequences that often come from good intentions, but ultimately don't really reduce risk? Um, if anything, they make the system less stable and then cut off a very important sort of set of capillaries that lead to the arteries that keep the heart and the lungs and the brain going in our economic system. I've been trying to formulate this question because I'm worried I'm going to insult everybody that it entails. So apologies if that happens. I am trying to be as diplomatic as possible. One thing that I have noticed, and this comes from only a decade of doing this, but a lot of boutiques tend to be run by what I would consider um, more outgoing or charismatic personalities. And Dominic, without any insult, I wouldn't want to, I would include you in that. We've met a couple of times. But do you think that that is a key factor? Is that being lost to an extent? Because we hear a lot of millennials and, and uh, Gen Z, it's more about job security and it's more about wanting to to ensure that they do get paid and there is less inclination to sort of break out and do their own thing. Or am I massively generalising? That's a really interesting question. I, I haven't got any evidence to, to, to um, know whether that is true or not. I, I don't believe that the entrepreneurial spirit changes from generation to generation. I think people are, there are always people who are naturally entrepreneurial who want to create um, something new, want to innovate and, and want to build a great business. I think what does change is the environment in which they operate. I think a lot of people who've come to the market in the last few years have come from the financial crisis, which clearly changed the cultural uh, luster of financial services to some extent. So you know, when I was leaving university, everyone wanted to go into financial services. And clearly in the last 10 years, uh, for, for good reasons, you know, A was profitable, B was you know, a cool thing to do in inverted commas. And I think that got tarnished from the financial crisis. And I think that's a pity. Um, I also think that the regulatory environment has just made the plethora of opportunities far more limited. Um, and I just don't have the conversations with young younger people than myself um, about the startups that I used to have 10, 15 years ago when I was when I was one of them. And I think that, that that is really more of the problem than anything else, because you need to see and hear your peers setting up their own business, going to join them, leaving them, setting up their own business, you know, that wonderful cycle of, of capitalism. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that... Um, it's down solely to uh, sort of so-called inspirational leadership, because I think that I've got lots of peers who are far better than me, um, who who don't who spend a much quieter and, and lower profile. And I, and I, and I think that they, they are to be hugely respected um, regardless of that. So I don't, I don't think it's about character traits. Um, I think it's about the situation we find ourselves in and the history of the last decade. And I just hope that will change. What I'm hoping, just to, just to finish on that answer, is that fintech, and associated tech-related financial services and investing, which is a massively growing opportunity in this country now, and there are some great clusters around London, is what will replace maybe the um, uh, enthusiasm for going into financial services, because I think there's a lot of disruption that we can still have in, in banking and financial services. Um, that's not the same as setting up boutique asset management firms, but it's very similar, and, and I hope that that sector flourishes and we do everything we can to make sure that it does. Well, that's the exact point I was going to come on to. So thank you. So that, that segues beautifully. When I did a piece on millennials probably four or five years ago, one of the German fund selectors I spoke to said, the problem is you can't really compete with the attractiveness of starting for a fintech in Berlin with doing a graduate scheme and then joining Deutsche Bank or whoever and trying to get onto the trading floor. So maybe the future lies in sort of bringing those two things together, leveraging one to help the other. But you're right, it does seem that there is a surfeit of people coming in directly into asset management or launching an asset management company at a young age? Um, it, it is interesting. that there, there's, there's a lot of talk that 
in the papers, I always talk about the end of a job for life and so on. Well, well, you know, I never had a, a job for life, and I certainly don't, don't feel that I do. Um, I, I don't. I think you, you still have to uh, work hard and get experience. Um, and if if there are other options where theoretically you can be very successful without having to either work necessarily very hard or certainly not have a huge amount of experience, and that's always going to be slightly market distortive. But I but I feel that there from the from my intro of people I meet who want to come into our industry, I'm very encouraged by the quality and calibre of people who apply to me independently for opportunities at Somerset Capital. And, and, and I'm always delighted to meet them and give them as much time as I can, even if, you know, at that particular moment, we might not have an opening for them. And, and they're not, I, I think that what is intriguing is that the candidates I'm seeing these days are very different from the candidates I saw 10 or 15 years ago. In a sense, I think you're getting a much broader um, and more diverse intake of people looking to go into certainly boutique fund management. And that's primarily because of ESG and sustainable investing concepts have opened up financial services principles to a whole um, a sector of graduates, particularly or school leavers, who, who want to combine their um, ambitions and sustainability with making a decent return. And that's actually quite interesting because I think up until four or five years ago, financial services was pretty one-dimensional in the sense of it was about making the best possible return you could and you know, managing your risk at, at the end of the day. Whereas with ESG um, and social responsible investing or other types of you know, related uh, investing and net zero and the, and the green revolution and so on, um, I find it wonderful uh, that I'm getting so many people coming to me interested in doing that who never probably would have applied to some of the capital before because they wouldn't have seen the social benefit or the, the alignment of, of their own interests, which, which is great. I think that's a hugely positive note to finish on. We've covered the whole gamut, the future, what people are going to be interested in, where the potential failings are, the regulatory challenges. I think there's a huge amount to get your teeth into. So thank you very much, Dominic. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been a great pleasure. Ninety-one, the investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91. Investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at Risk. 91 is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.